This morning, we are in 1 Timothy, and we are in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. Uh, Yep, so many, so many verses this morning. Uh, 12 through 17. Uh, R.D. was was with us last week, and if you were not here, I suggest you go back and listen to what he did with the law, uh, which was very good. Uh, But I'm going to say some things about 8 through 11 because I have to say some things about it that he preached last week because I need to set up what I'm saying this week in 12. And so I'm not reteaching 8 through 11, but I am revisiting 8 through 11 uh, for just a moment. And so as I do that, I want to uh, show you what 8 through 11 is. This is 1 Timothy 8 through 11, and it is... Uh, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual and moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So what you get in these passages of scripture is Paul lays out the kind of person that he's talking about that the law is for. And here are the four, the the three categories, kind of the six descriptors of the kind of person. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. And then he gives you a list of characteristics that follow. Those are the kinds of people, these are the characteristics of those folks. That's Paul's list. And in that list, he is saying these things are contrary to the law of God. These things are contrary to what pleases God. And then, after saying that, he says verse 11. You... You are addressing folks who are contrary to sound doctrine, which sound doctrine literally means in the Greek, healthy giving or healthy teaching. That's the meaning of that. Anything contrary to healthy teaching. The first thing you and I have to trust is that God is not after anything in us that is not for our own good. He's not after, by his very nature, he can't be. He can't be after something that is not for our good. And his whole purpose is to be after the good of those who he's speaking with. And in this particular context, to tell Timothy to be after the good of those whom Timothy is shepherding in Ephesus. And it's in accordance because sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted And this is Paul's sticking point. This is why Paul says the things he says. He says, I have been entrusted. He also says that in a few other areas. Let me just show you two. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 4. But though we already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. See, Paul is saying, I'm not after anything that is not good for you in my proclamation of this gospel. But 
just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And we don't speak the gospel to please men. We speak the gospel to please God. Why? Because God is who tests the heart. Paul is entrusted, and he takes that entrusting dead seriously. Titus 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul's mission, it's part of his mission statement here. Which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages, began and at a proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. He has been commanded to preach the gospel. And he has been entrusted to preach the gospel. And he says right here in verse 11, chapter 1, I have been, you, you, you address men who are teaching anything contrary to the gospel because it is contrary to sound doctrine, which is contrary to the gospel with which I have been entrusted. I will not go against that which has been given to me and entrusted to me to proclaim. I will not do that. I must. I have been commanded. I've been entrusted. Paul is passionate about this law and what is in line with the gospel. He will not compromise. And he is in the middle of teaching Timothy right now not to compromise it. He has left Timothy in Ephesus to address those who are compromising it. That's the premise of the entire book. That's why Timothy's there. You and I must see the seriousness of the calling to be entrusted with the gospel and everybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus is entrusted with a similar task to take the gospel for what it is and the seriousness of it which should more than anything in your life define your life. That's life-defining. And then, you have to know that. You have to know what he's saying because he says all that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of pressing in attention, in the midst of asking his son in the faith to press in attention. And then Paul, does, Paul goes into verse 12, and here's where he goes in verse 12. Paul gets reflective. He's holding up the importance of this gospel and he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He has given me strength, he has judged me faithful, and he's appointed me to his service. The strength to what? Proclaim the gospel. Judge me faithful to do what? Hold true to the gospel. To the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Because when you do these two things, you are serving. These three things. 
So he gets reflective. He's talking about what God has done in him. I thank him who has given me the strength, judged me faithful, appointed me to serve. Because now he's about to say something that puts a light on what he said in verses 8 through 11. Remember that hard list of, of kinds of people and that really hard list of characteristics that are characteristic of those kinds of people? It's a hard list. Well, here's what he says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Before the overall picture of what Paul is saying here, he's saying a blasphemer is an act committed in the quality of the doer or the attitude with which he does it. It is, def- it is a defaming, denigrating, demeaning act to blaspheme. You are in absolute opposition. A persecutor is to harass someone or plot against them. Do you know it's the idea in the Greek, it's the idea of a taskmaster. To persecute someone... Um, There's a passage in talking about fatherhood that says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. You know one of the main ways you can provoke your children to wrath? Just put your thumb on them. No, don't put that chair there. Move it an inch to the right. Put the chair there. That's how some of you have been parented, which is why you rebelled against your parents. And that's what the idea is. You become a taskmaster. You're a persecutor. Literally, a father can become a persecutor of his children. An insolent opponent. This word insolent is the, der- the Greek derivative is to insult. It's one, the definition is one who insults in an arrogant manner. So not only am I blaspheming, not only am I insulting, I mean I'm insulting from an arrogant place. I'm haughty in my insult. Opponent is a word that means adversary, someone who is against, an insolent opponent. And this is what Paul is saying about himself. This is what Paul is saying about himself, but I want you to notice something. I'm going to get into this a little later. Um, though I was, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, formerly, Paul is not saying this is what characterizes his life now. He's saying it, it's what did characterize his life before Christ. And then he makes a distinction between who he was, a persecutor, a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, to now, and he uses this phrase that's one of the most important in Scripture. But. But. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ 
Jesus. If the Christian wanted to make the case that the most important concept in Christianity is the concept of contrast, and they wanted to make the case that the word but is the most important word to communicate that most important concept of contrast, they could do it. Look at Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Everybody is a slave, by the way. You are dead men walking. That's what that, that's what that means. You're breathing, but without Christ, dead. That's Ephesians 2. Welcome to Fellowship North. We'd like to encourage here. Among whom all y'all were once apart. No, no. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's a worldview conference for you right there. And were by nature children of wrath. In other words, dead. Like the rest of mankind. Like who? Everybody else. We all, like everybody else, dead in our trespasses. That's what Paul just said. That's where we once lived. And then you get to verse 4 and praise God for the word, for the transition in verse 4. But God... See that right there? If the, if the Spirit were on us, we would all fall to our knees right now. In a, in a spirit of gratitude that you can't comprehend. I think when you get to heaven, all the, all the, all the jokes and all the thoughts about when you get to the gates... And when you stand in front of Jesus, which by the way, I don't talk about that very seriously because I don't think there's a lot of good input about what that actually is going to be like. But when you do, I think that you will do two things. You will first see the reality of your wickedness for what it was in this life. I think you'll see that like you've never seen it before. Because only in the light of your understanding of that will you see the grandness and the grandeur and the greatness of the grace and the love of God. It, it will be more than you can handle on both ends. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at Romans 3. By the way, that's one of your primary gospel passages. Here's Romans 3. Here's another one of your primary gospel passages. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight 
since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That meaning it has no power. The law has no power to justify you in any way. The righteousness of God doesn't come through the law. The righteousness of God comes through faith. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Guess in whom? Christ Jesus. Because if you and I are stuck with the law that we can't meet, that we can't keep, you and I are in trouble. Without righteousness, you cannot commune with your Father. It's impossible. You need it. You can't can't get it through what's been given And then Paul says, bad news, can't attain it through the law. Good news, but now. Somebody has done it on your behalf. He says in verse 14, back to to Timothy 13 and 14, because I acted ignorantly. In Paul's ignorance, the grace of our Lord, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Overflowing, not just enough for my ignorance, it's more than enough for my ignorance. It's an interesting, overflowed uh, is only used one time in the New Testament. It's right here. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It literally means uh, to be present in a superabundance. To be present in a superabundance. I'm sitting at the dinner table the other night. This is about three weeks ago. We're sitting there having dinner. And uh, I'll tell this story because uh, my youngest daughter is not in here. Uh, so we're eating something. I don't even remember what we're eating. I remember what we're not eating uh, because of what I was thinking. But we're eating something and she says, Ah, this is soup's hot. And I was like, what? Like, we're not even having soup. She's like, she looks at me like this, and I'm like, wait a minute. What are you looking at me like that for? She's like, what are you talking about? I said, what are you talking about? She said, it's soup's hot. I'm like, what? <laughs> Dad, it's super hot. To say that the grace overflowed, <clears throat> what my 10-year-old daughter would translate is, God's grace is soups abundant. <laughs> soups abundant. What sad is, that's probably the only thing you'll remember about this morning. <laughs> it's abundant. It's super abundant, Right? It's more than you need. It's not just enough. It's not barely enough. It's super enough. It's soups enough. Like it does more than you can comprehend. And it's with faith, Paul says, with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The way that grace is manifested is in the faith and the love that resides in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Uh, Did I do? Yeah, here it is. Look at this. You just saw this. You just saw verse 4. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then says, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that say he will raise us up with him? What's that say? That's past tense, folks. That's past tense. You want to talk about the security of salvation? It's a great verse. It's not something he's going to do, something he has done. For all those who have claimed Christ as their Savior, he has raised them up and seated them in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, the reason you have been saved and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms is for whose glory? God's. Because he's going to use you as a testimony to his love and grace and mercy that's your purpose. Nothing more. You want to find meaning in life? There it is. That's what you got. There's your option. Option A or nothing else. How's that for a multiple choice? But then he says this. He says again, this is right after it. This is continuing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. You see that little word right there? And this that word has caused a ton of theological debate. You know there are books written about that word? I am not kidding. Like this is not, I'm not, it's not hyperbole. Theologians have written chapters and books on that word. Do you know what the debate is? What's that refer to? What does this refer to? Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. What is not of your own doing? In my opinion, the most trustworthy translation here is that it is talking about the fullness of, of the salvation experience. It's the encompassing of the grace and the faith and the mercy that comes to you is not of your own doing, which means if salvation comes to you by grace through faith, and faith is how you and I express the reality of the grace of salvation in our life, even the faith that we use to express the grace that has come to us is not yours. <laughs> it's of God. Who gets the glory in that particular scenario? Only, there's only one option. Here again, you like these multiple choice quizzes, don't you? It's A and nothing else. Like, don't you wish you had those in school? It's to the glory of God alone. Man, you and I would mess up so fewer things if we had that right there, that perspective, more clearly defined. You would not so arrogantly claim to know things that you so obviously don't. You would not so arrogantly claim the right to choose about things that you don't have the right to choose about. 
because you would see them through the lens of the grandness of God and the smallness of you. And how any worth that you have comes from the creator God alone. And you would more often put yourself in a place of submitting than fighting him. That's what you would do if this were clear to you and me because I am with you. You cannot boast. There is no room. It's the entire process. And Paul is reflecting on this overflowing salvation, salvations from the gospel. And he will not, uh, and this salvation is the gospel and he will not receive this great faith and love only to do with it what he pleases. He will not be so ostentatious as to change that which has given him life or bring a life of sin into the life with which God has given him. And then there is verse 15 and 16. And I want you to, I want you to see, actually, this is 15. Yes, this is 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the crux of the passage and of chapter 1 of Timothy. If you're outlining chapter Timothy and you want to write the climax and you want to write the point, you want to, you want to, you want to get what Paul's saying, you circle verse 15 really big because this is it. It is trustworthy and deserving of acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I of whom I am the foremost. There's three things I want you to see here. First is there's a place for anyone in the kingdom of God, regardless of their past or their current state. And the reason that is, is because of the grace and the mercy of God who came in the form of Jesus Christ to save one and only one kind of person. Who is it? Sinners. There's only one kind of person who Jesus saves. And sometimes those of us who have been saved forget that there's only one kind of person that Jesus saves. And what Paul is doing right now is not forgetting. He's not forgetting. He's remembering. As he is calling out sin and sinners, do you know what he's doing? He's saying, make sure you understand my context. Make sure you understand me. Make sure you know where I'm coming from. Make sure you hear me. And number two, when Paul talks about the law and how it condemns the sinner by exposing their sin and says the law is for the lawless and the disobedient and the ungodly and the sinner and the unholy and the profane, he calls out sinners and in so doing, he does not do it as someone who is arrogantly pointing a judgmental finger, he is doing so as one saved by the very thing he points to, the grace and mercy of God. The third thing 
is that as Paul is writing to Timothy about dealing with false teachers and those swerving from the truth, he is telling Timothy to deal with sin in people's lives and especially those who promote it in Ephesus because dealing with the devastation of sin is what Jesus came to do and what Jesus has called Paul and Timothy to do. That's what we do. Do you know that Christianity is about one primary thing? Dealing with sin. That's what Christianity is about. There's nothing for us to talk about that doesn't include that. Everything, everything you talk about has to do with that. It has to do with the sin that's held against you either for eternally or the sin that is in your life now, temperately, that shouldn't be there because now the Holy Spirit dwells within you and is making you like the perfect law keeper to be who is pleasing to the Father. Here, sin is about preaching what Paul, is, what Paul is addressing, what he is telling Timothy about. is about preaching a different doctrine which manifests itself in either one of two things. Compromising the message of salvation to be a different message than what is intended to be. Meaning they're skewing the gospel message. Or they are compromising the standards for what is pleasing to God with our lives as people who live under the grace of God, the God who has saved us. Those two things that Paul is dealing with. You don't mess with the gospel message and you don't mess with sin in people's lives. And you don't make room for changing either of them. This is an evangelical message. It is a, um, it's an invitation to faith message. It's a no one, no one is exempt from the kingdom. And so in light of what I believe Paul is talking about here in two specific things, I wrote this down and I wrote kind of an explanation of the gospel and I want you to just listen. Because the first has to do with the salvation, the, the, the gospel as being saved eternally by the, by, by, as being saved eternally by the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, by the way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the message because in the message is the power of God to do what? Save. So here it is. Sin separates us from the Father and is the catalyst of our broken relationship with our Creator. Sin is the barrier that keeps us from our Father. Within this broken relationship with our Creator, our sin has a substantial consequence. It's called death. In order to be made right with Him, justified, we must have this catalytic barrier, our sin and the consequence of it, which is death, removed. That sin is removed for us when we believe that Jesus Christ has done what is necessary to remove it. What has he done? He has lived a perfect life, and through living his perfect life, the life of the perfect law keeper, he has therefore... He is therefore the only spotless, perfect, law-keeping lamb 
who is now sufficient to be the sacrifice necessary to pay the price that sin requires, death. Because he is the perfect law keeper, he doesn't deserve to die. Therefore, when he does die, he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave. And when he rises, he defeats death. And in so doing, steals its power. Now, what is sin's trump card? Death becomes obsolete, useless, powerless. And it does not become useless for Jesus only but also toward all who would believe in him. That is, that Jesus, because of who he is, had the right and the power to kill sin and that through his death and resurrection actually did kill it. Therefore, for all those who believe that Jesus' victory is their victory, the power of sin to kill them is nullified. Now, as one who has had his sins or her sins forgiven, if the law which has been put in place to expose the very sin that Jesus died for, that's Galatians 3, helps us see that we, because of our sin, can't keep the law perfectly and therefore leads us like a guide or a guardian to the perfect law keeper so that we might claim his keeping of the law on our behalf, how could we then be okay with practicing the very things we have been delivered from, those things contrary to the law, God's perfect standard? In being justified to our Father through the perfect law keeper, Jesus, we have been transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We have been placed on a journey to reflect the perfect law keeper, which is only possible because we have been freed from the penalty of the law, death. Again, there is no room in this scenario to justify things contrary to the law in our life. There is no room to teach a different doctrine. There is no room to devote ourselves to myths and endless genealogies. There is no room to have speculations talked about and, and um, spoken of. There is no desire to be a teacher while lacking understanding in what we teach. There is no room to make confident assertions that are contrary to the truth. There is no room to swerve from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And there is no room to live in any such way that is contrary to sound doctrine. And all I did is just repeat to you 1 Timothy chapter 1. Right there. One writer said the central thrust of Paul's personal digression about his own testimony, who began in verse 12, now becomes clear. It's a testimony concerning the purpose of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus came not merely to set an example or to show that he cared. He came to salvage sinners from their spiritual destitution. And Paul said he was the worst of the lot. 
there must be no misunderstanding of, his, of this most fundamental point. It is the truth that is completely trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And in verse 16, he said, I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, the chief, Paul is saying, I am the extreme example In me, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is not just for Paul's audience. This is not just for Ephesus. This is not just for Timothy. This is for you. Paul is saying, if God's grace can save my life, it can save any of you. And then the last verse is this, which I uh, inadvertently did not put down. It is verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to honor and glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what that's called? A doxology. You know what a doxology is? It's made up of two words. Doxa and logia. And it means a praise uttering. Paul utters praise to the Father that has saved his life and therefore gives reason why he will not compromise the gospel that saves men. Ever. Because he preaches the gospel to the praise of his God who tests his heart, not to the praise of man. Father, it takes a tremendous amount of trust to not, and a tremendous amount of conviction to cling to that which is true because everything within us and outside of us beckons us to compromise. Thank you. Thank you for giving us men and women in these scriptures that understand clearly their role to bring you glory, regardless of what that costs them. And thank you that none of us have any merit to stand before you on our own. It is in Christ Jesus we stand. And it is to your praise and glory and honor that we do so. In the name of Jesus, amen.